So the Christian life is a forgiven life, and it's a, a life that uh, continues from the day you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to a pursuit of holiness. In other words, your life as a believer in Christ is one of progressively growing, progressively maturing into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going to grow in the Lord, and you will if you're a Christian, you must first come to realize who you are in Christ. And if you don't realize who you are, you will not be able to grow in the image of Christ. We're called to realize that we're in a battle, we're in a war. It's a battle for holiness. It's a battle against sin. And it's gonna, if you're going to stand victorious on that last day, you need to know who you are as a Christian. And so I ask you, who are you? Who are you as a Christian? How would you identify yourself today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? What is your makeup? How, What's different about you today than, say, was before the day that you trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord? Most of us, are, I think our view in answering that question would come from our emotions. Much, much of us might come from our view of just what we, we think we've heard about the Christian life. And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us do not have a clear understanding of who we are. No wonder we're being beat up and losing in the spiritual battle. Uh, we see in Scripture God has given us a revelation of who we are. It's found here in the book of Romans. And that's why I think it's important it's in chapter 7 especially that we kind of wrap our, our minds and our emotions around what Paul's saying here so that we might leave with an understanding, a clear understanding of who we are in Christ. Uh, this is the only place I know to find out who I am is in the Scriptures. Any other place is going to fall short. You know, if your view of your Christian life is you are just like you were before you believed in Christ, but now you're forgiven, and the only thing that's changed about you and your life that's different from the way you were is you squeeze about an hour and a half once a week to come to church, then you do not know who you are as a believer in Christ. This is why the book of Romans is so important for us. This is why chapter 7 is so important to us. Uh, hopefully you have been following with us as we opened up this book, the, the pathway of grace. Remember Paul started off by sharing with us that uh, he wants to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember the first three chapters? Pretty dark, right? Do you remember the first three chapters? Condemnation. Universal condemnation for sin. And we went through that laboriously. And I, I felt when we got to the end of, of that passage, that I, you know, it, it couldn't get any darker. It was dark. And, uh, but then, at the end of chapter 3, Paul flips the switch and, and turns the lights on. And with that dark background, he, he floods our mind with the glorious light of what? The doctrine of justification by faith. And what a beautiful doctrine that is. You know, in uh, 3 through 5, Paul turned on the lights of what does it mean to be justified by faith, uh, the good news of how God sent His Son into the world uh, to be a Savior of His people, 
how he sacrificially laid down his life on a cross. Substitutionally, he paid for the penalty of all that he came to, to, uh, to save. And then he says, if you'll simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, repenting of your sin, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be justified. The gavel goes down. You'll be not guilty before God. And that's not going to change. That, that, that's a permanent decision of God. You, you, you'll be justified. And not only that, you'll have the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is, he'll clothe you in his righteousness so that now when you stand before the Father, you're standing like Christ stands before his heavenly Father as righteous. The righteousness of Christ. Now, here's the deal. It didn't stop there. It didn't stop the moment you believed in Christ. The Christian life goes on until the day that you leave this earth. And that's what we're talking about in chapters 6, 7, and 8. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And who are you? That's going back to our question. So who are you now that God has saved you? Who are you now that you've, you've trusted in Christ? Yes, you're forgiven. But you remember we've been looking at 6 and 7 and we haven't got in date. That's even more glorious. But as we, as, as we work our way through this section on sanctification, God's done a work of transformation in your life. Do you realize that? He's taken the old heart out of stone, and He's put in a new heart of flesh. So your, your heart, your, your inner being of yourself is totally different. He's put Himself in you. He's made you into a holy temple, and in Himself is the Holy Spirit residing in you and abiding in you. God is in you. The old you, whoever you were, we heard about the old you in both of these testimonies, is dead. The old Kyle's dead. The old Rachel's dead. They're new creatures in Christ. Behold, all things have become what? New. And so uh, the, old, the old man, the old person's died, and they've become new persons in Christ. And now, who are you? Well, now you're a person who has the power, the ability, the desire to live the life that God has set before you, which is to live a holy life, to live a sanctified life. So that raises the question that we're going to answer today. It's a very practical question. If all this transformation has taken place in my life, I've got a new heart, I'm a new person, I'm dead to sin, I've been transformed, I have the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here's the question then, why do I keep on sinning? Right? I mean, why do we sin? If all that's happened to me, and that's who I am, why do I sin? And that's one of the main things. Themes we're going to see uh, working its way out in chapter 7. Remember the main theme in chapter 7 was the law of God? I forget how many times in chapter 7 the word law, namas, is uh, brought over and over again, but it's the main theme. We saw that the law of God will not save you, right? And now we're seeing the law of God will not sanctify you. We've been through the question, well, does that make the law of God sinful? And he says, no, 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 may it never be. But he's showing us now the role of the law in the life of the believer. That's those of us who have been saved. We saw that uh, the the law brings its diagnostic tool to the unbeliever. It exposes the area of sin in their life. It points them to Christ, to to salvation. 
but it not only diagnoses, we even saw how the law stirs up more sin because, you know, our, 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 the unbelieving heart is such that when you hear no from God, what happens? You're stirred up inside. You say, oh, yeah, let me show you. Yes, I'm going to do it. And so it stirs up more sin, not because it is evil, but because of the nature of our own heart. That still doesn't answer our question. Now that you've become a Christian, now that this radical change has taken place in your life, why do you sin? So now Paul comes, uh, bringing us the work of the law and the life of the believer. The work of the law and the life of the believer is, well, it doesn't sanctify. We know that. You can't, like, keep the law and become more like Jesus Christ. That's not uh, sanctification. But instead, what he does is this. I'm going to answer the question, he says, by bringing you an autobiographical picture of my own heart. And I'm going to put it on the table, and I want you to look at it and see who I am. And learn from that. And we saw last time in verse 13, the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous. So when you sin as a Christian, the problem isn't the law. We're going to see the problem is within you. And think of yourself this way. We're going to be developing this as we go through this passage. But think of yourself as a new man, a new, create, new creation, and new heart, indwelling spirit, loving God, wanting to live a holy life, but you find yourself encased in a coffin of sin. And so now you've got this conflict going on. You're in, you're in a coffin of sin, and yet here you are wanting to knock on to get out because I don't want to be in sin. And so this battle goes on being inside a coffin of sin. There's a war raging inside the coffin. And the life of the true Christian and a believer is, is a war, and it's a battle for holiness. And I can't under, underscore that enough. The Christian life is a war. It's a battle for holiness. And if you have any other vision of the Christian life than that, you do not have a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian this side of glory. There's a war that's taking place between the flesh and the spirit. It's a war against sin. It's a war that doesn't have a truce to it. It's a war that has no ceasefires. It's, it's a war that rages day after day after day without a break until you breathe your last breath. That's the Christian life. Now, I don't know if anybody presented that to you before you came to Christ, but that's, that was what it meant to count the cost. That's the other side. And so we, we look and we see and this war is normative. It's normative Christianity. And uh, it's going to rage until the day that we die. So the question is, how then are we any different than we were before we were saved? We have all these changes that God brought to us, all the transformation that took place. Why is it? Are, are we any different than we were before we trusted in Christ, as far as sin goes? John Newton said, describing our, the war in our life this way, he says, I'm not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not even what I hope to be. But by the cross of Christ, I am not what I once was. Now, that's, that's the battle in a, in a capsule. 
That's what we're facing as believers in Christ. I mean, I, I think he says it very succinctly that uh, uh, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not even what I hope I would be. But by the cross of Christ, I am not what I was. Why do we sin? Why is this war raging in each of our hearts and lives? Well, Paul brings the answer in verses four through, 14 through the end of the chapter. And it's interesting how he does it. He could have done it, you know, just by, okay, here's, this is what you need to know about the flesh, and this is what you need to know about the heart, this is what you need to know about the law, and this is what, you know. But instead he says, no, I'm just going to pull my chest open. Look at my heart. Look at my life. Look at my struggles. Look at my sin and learn from me. Let me explain it this way, he's saying. I want you to look at all the ugliness that's in my own life. All the remaining sin that's still there. And look at the war that's taking place in me. For you to understand what what normative Christianity is like for you. And I thought about that. How many of us, I'll put myself at the top of the list. How many of us would be that transparent that it's this day? If I passed out a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen to every one of you and, and, and I said, well, let's just take 10 minutes out and write down what happened this last week in our life. And let's expose it to the whole congregation. Let's tell them about our thoughts and our battles and our war for sin. How many of us would be as transparent as the Apostle Paul is being here in chapter 7? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that transparency. He's not a proud man. In fact, he's, he's exposing his heart by lamenting. He's sorrowful for what he's exposing to you, that it's even there in his own heart. And by the way, what's true of Paul is universally tr- true of every one of us who name the name of Christ in this room. It's true of you, and it's true of me, probably to the, what, power of ten or whatever on top of Paul. So where does sin come from? Does it come from the law? Does it come from the law? Does does the law in our life bring sin? And we see in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. It's not the law. Notice he put we there. He says, for we know the law is spiritual. Instead of first person, he's going to the plural, uh, from the singular to the plural. And uh, I think what he's saying to us as a church is that Christians, this is something you all know. This isn't anything new right here. You know what the law is. It's more than just words carved on a hard, cold stone tablet. The law is spiritual. It was penned by, the, by God Himself. It's, it, it's the words of the Holy Spirit. And it's common Christian knowledge that, that, that sin doesn't come from the law. We saw last week, the the law is perfect, the law is holy, the law is good. Here he says the law is spiritual. It's penned by God. And by the way, it's a reflection of who he is, isn't it? You want to know who God is? Just look into his law. It's it's a revelatory truth, a revelatory truth of who God is with all of his divine attributes. It's a reflection of God. So if sin doesn't come from the law, where does it come from? That's our question. Where does sin come from in your life? 
And he answers in verse 14, it comes from inside of you, and it comes from inside of me. But I am of the flesh sold in sin. So it doesn't come from the law out, it comes from the sin that's within. I'm carnal, sarkonos, uh, fleshly. Uh, I'm human. Uh, And I believe there he's talking about that unredeemed principle that's within him and all of us, even as Christians. And so I'm, I'm fleshly. And this is interesting. You know, there's some really hard language in here as we go through this. Uh, hard in the sense that a lot of what he says seems to just fly in the face of things he's already said. Or it flies in the face of something we're going to read about in chapter 8. I mean, on its surface, it even appears maybe to contradict a little bit of what we've seen before and what we're going to see in the future. You know, I mean, you say, wait a minute, Paul, Paul you're saying I am... I am of the flesh. Paul, didn't you write Romans 8, next chapter, that says those who are in the flesh cannot please God, uh, though, though they're not believers, they're unredeemed. Haven't we already decided that you're redeemed when you wrote this? And then he goes on to add, and this is even, this is even probably the most difficult uh, phraseology in the, in the whole seventh chapter. Sold under sin. Here I am, I open my chest, look look at my heart, see what you see. I'm a fleshly person, sin's within, and I'm sold under sin. Now, I don't know, I didn't look at all the different translations you might have on that part of verse 14, but I do know this. That's language right out of the slave market. I've sold my soul right into sin. I've sold myself into sin. And then if you've been with us, you're going, wait a minute, Paul, we've been through this before. You told us about sin and being a slave to sin in our, in, our, in, our, in our life. How can you say of yourself as an apostle, you're sold under sin, a slave unto sin? In fact, uh, Douglas Moo, uh, one of the commentaries that I, I used throughout this series, uh, who believes, by the way, he doesn't believe that Paul is a Christian when he wrote this. And there's good men on both sides of that question. But he, he, he it's so strong, he says this. This cinches describing Paul as a non-Christian. This, this is the final, the final nail in the coffin. This, this is it. This is the linchpin. I mean, because there's no way that Paul could be a Christian and write, I'm sold under sin. I mean, after all, we saw in Romans 6, 18, and having been set free from sin... And have become slaves to God, the fruit of you get leads to sanctification and the end to eternal life. So you're free. You're, you're, you've been freed from slavery to sin. Verse 22, the same chapter, but now that you have been set free from sin, you become a slave to God. So you're not, no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave to God. We went through that passage. So the, doesn't that really ask a question? I mean, aren't you wondering what the answer to the parent contradiction is to this? This is the kind of thing I wrestled with all week last week, trying to, trying to get my own understanding around this so I could present it in a way that brings clarity and meaning to all of us. I believe the only way we can understand this, because I, I believe the case for Paul being a, uh, a Christian in, in Romans 7 is strong. It's not, I think it's compelling, let's put it that way. It's a compelling argument. Not that there isn't a good argument that he's, he's a non-Christian, but that raises even more problems. 
I think we have to see a difference between being in bondage to sin as an unbeliever and Paul saying that he's sold under sin as a believer. The slavery that we saw back in uh, Romans 6, this is of every non-Christian that's here today, you're a slave to sin. What does that mean? You you can't stop it. You don't want to. You you are in bondage to it, and and there's no way out. There's no way out. You are a slave to sin unless God changes it. But here he says you're sold under sin. And, and what, I, what I left with after working through this quite a bit is that we as Christians are never going to be slaves to sin like we were before we were saved. I mean, we, none of us can be here today, well, I'm, just, I'm so in bondage to sin I can never get out of it. And I don't want to get out of it. And that's just who I am. No, that's an unbeliever. But the believer, on the other hand, is a person who can, in fact, and I think experientially, Paul's saying, I feel like, even though I'm saved and I've been delivered from from slavery to sin, I still feel like I'm sold under sin. Sold under sin. And I think by that he's saying that it has such a grip on my life, I feel like I'm a slave to it. But not like I was before I was saved. And think about your life. Don't we all struggle with what we call besetting sins? You know, the besetting sins are almost addictive. I mean, they're almost like they're so compelling in our life. We fight with them. We wrestle with the same sins over and over and over again. And sometimes they're, they're addictions. We call them addictions in the Christian life. And so, you know, we have a besetting sin of anger. We have a besetting sin of pride. We have a besetting sin of, of addiction to gambling or, or addiction to drunkenness or, or addiction to drugs or pornography or sexual uncleanliness. And it's such so gripping that you say, I feel like a slave to pornography. I can't get out of this thing. It's got a grip on me that it just will not let go and I can't seem to gain victory. Now, the difference between a Christian feeling that and a non-Christian being caught up in, in pornography is... The, the one who's a slave before he's, he was saved doesn't even want to get out of it, doesn't feel like they need to get out of it. They're, they're enjoying the sin, and they're in no battle. They're in no warfare. It, it's just simply something that they are enslaved to in their heart and life. Calvin said it would not be a sin if it were not voluntary. We are, however, so addicted to sin that we can do nothing of our own accord but to sin. And I know in, in ministry and counseling, and some of you are going to go up to the counseling uh, conference in Bozeman, you know, there's a lot of counseling today in the area of addictive behavior. How do you break it? How do you break that addiction to pornography? It's just, it's just it's, it's like, like an octopus. It's just gotcha, you know. Uh, or, or, or drunkenness. Or drug addiction. These are compelling, addictive behaviors that almost appear as though you're slaves to them. Not a slave like you were before you were a Christian, but even as a Christian, we can be addicted to these things and have that kind of compulsion in our life. So Paul's not bragging here, by the way, or celebrating his sin and, and, you know, and look at me, but, but he's saddened. He's lamenting through this passage. I'm sorry I have to bring this to your attention, he's saying. These are heavy things on my heart. 
Now, we are all in the process of being saved. We're being sanctified. We haven't arrived yet. And uh, we're in this body of sin, and, and we haven't received a glorified body yet. So we're in this state of in-between right now. We are free from the slavery to sin that we looked at, Romans 6, but we're still enslaved by, by addictions or to certain sins in our life, even as believers in Christ. And now we're being sanctified, and now the war begins. And we've entered into the war. It started. The first shot was fired the moment you trusted in Christ. And it's not going to stop until the day that you see Jesus. The second point here is the confusion of sin that Paul brings. He says, for I I do not understand my own actions. I mean, when you're in the fog of spiritual warfare... You really don't. You get confused, and and you wonder. Uh, you become disoriented. You become perplexed. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? How did I get here? This is something we've all felt. And Paul's saying, when I find myself sinning, I don't understand even what I'm doing. I'm confused. For I do not know. For I do not do what I want. And I do the very thing that I hate. Why is that? He's saying. Things I want to do the most to please God, I don't do if I do those. I don't glorify God with my life. I do not I do the very things I hate. And the word hate here is a very, very strong word. I mean, there's things that we hate about ourselves, about sin, because the Bible says we should hate them. And yet the things I hate the most, I do. Have you ever is that you? Have you been there? I mean, the things you actually detest in your heart and your inner man, you still do it? I believe every one of us could say amen to that because I believe all of us struggle on this level. This is part of the battle that we all face. Think of the very things that you hate in your life. I think we all have our own list. Some of us hate pride. Others hate selfishness. I hate telling lies. I hate being lazy. I hate drunkenness, I hate drug addiction, I hate pornography, I hate sin, and I do it again. That's what Paul's saying here, and the very things that you hate the most, you do. And the battle then rages within the heart, and you fight against them. Hopefully you can identify with what Paul's saying here in Romans 7, and hopefully you feel a sense of being perplexed. When you do sin, uh, overcome by a sense of confusion, you feel like Paul feels. Let me ask you, do you feel that conflict within you? This isn't some guy right off the spiritual boat that just a brand new convert in Christ. This is the Apostle Paul speaking here. I mean, he's the man of God. He penned the theology that he's writing about here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Saying, and here he is saying, what I'm doing, I don't understand. This is Paul speaking. I don't understand what I'm doing. I can't understand. I can't find myself doing what I want to do. And by the way, this wouldn't be just Paul, some unique example from the Bible. Every godly man, woman in the, in the, in the Old and the New Testament would have this exact same story. 
I mean, think about David, a man after God's own heart. He knew the law of God. He sang Psalm 119. And it came off his lips how much he loved and delighted in the law of God. Delighted in doing what God wanted him to do. And his passion was to be obedient to his heavenly Father. He hated the sixth commandment and he hated the seventh commandment. The adultery and murder. So that's his heart. That's the heart after God. And so, and so that warm day came along, and he's strolling out, and he's looking out the window, and, and he looks on the rooftop and sees Bathsheba out there, and all of a sudden things get stirred up in his own heart. Next thing he knows, he's carrying on an adulterous relationship with her. And then you've got to cover sin up. You just can't let sin be out there exposed. So let's get rid of her husband Uriah while we're at it. So now we've got adultery, we have murder, and I'm sure somewhere in there... David must have experienced the same thing that Paul did and said, what am I doing? What, what's, what's going on? I don't understand myself. I'm perplexed. I'm sure he felt as Paul felt after committing his adultery and murder, but he did. And remember, he lamented over that. That battle was going on in his own heart. He lamented and repented. So number three, we see the uh, affirmation of sin. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So there's something good coming out of here that if I, if I do what I'm not supposed to do and I, what I don't want to do, what I'm actually doing, the good side of that is I'm agreeing that the law is good, that it's not bad, that it's not, I'm not blaming the law. And every time that I do that, which I, I do not want to do, it proves my point. God's law is good. I'm agreeing with it. That's why there's a war. And with your inner man, you are giving hearty amen that the law is the very, the very truth, the goodness of God. Number four, indwelling power of sin. Verse 17. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so here we see the indwelling power of sin. That, that you said, Remember our question, where does sin come from? There's an indwelling power of sin. So now, then the question would be, as opposed to when or then, when's the then? Well, the then was when you believed in Christ. So, so, so now, now that you're a Christian, and I'm a Christian, and I'm believing in Christ... If the source of sin is not the law, if the source of sin is the flesh, if I am a new creature in Christ, what's the source of that sin? It's not me, he says. It's not the new man that I become. It's the sin that's within me. And what does he mean? It's the sin that's within me. Well, I don't believe he's talking about individual acts of sin. I think he's talking about a principle, a passion, a desire, a lust for sin that's within him, that remains there even though he's a Christian. And it's taken up residence in his life even though he's a new person. He, he, he's an, a, a, an unhonored squatter. So that's who you are in Christ. You've got your new man in Christ, new woman in Christ, your new person transformed, but inside of you, you've got the squatter. And this unhonored squatter is sin, the principle of sin and the lust that develops into individual sins. 
And it's there, and it's going to stay there, and it's not going to leave you. That's who you are. So is, is Paul denying that he's responsible for his own sin here? I mean, it sure sounds like blame shifting, doesn't it, in verse 17? So now it's no longer I that do it. It's, it's that sin that dwells in me. You know, it's the old flip will. The devil made me do it. You know, it's, it's the sin in me. I, it's not me. No, he doesn't mean that at all. He's not saying I'm not responsible for my sins. He knows that he is. And, he, and he, by the way, he's not arguing some sort of uh, dualism here. He, this isn't like a little Gnosticism creeping in with the Apostle Paul where he, he believes that the, the dualistic nature of man, that there's a physical part of man, there's a spiritual part of man, and the two are completely separated so that the, the physical man can go out and sin and sin and sin, and, and the spiritual side of man can just have a good relationship with God. And you got the best of both worlds. That's dualism. And it's not that. He's not saying that. No, his point is that the failure to put into action what he wills to do shows the point to something outside, besides himself that's involved in the situation. So he's confused. He's trying to figure out what's going on within me. He knows he's a new creature in Christ. Uh, he knows who he is, but yet there's still sin, so there must be something else. Something else that must be at work here. And uh, something alien to, to who I really am. Because I know I'm a new creation. And so we see, he says, it's sin. It's the principle of sin that still dwells within me. And then he tells us the location of that sin in verse 18. For sin is in me, the new creation, where does it reside? And then he says in 18, he answers by saying, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my what? My flesh. So that's where the sin principle, that's where the, uh, the, the, the sin that he's talking about dwells is within his flesh. And I don't believe he's talking about the, the flesh, skin, you know, person that way. I believe he's talking about flesh as, as that unredeemed principle within him that, that's there. Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that's where it is inside of you. And uh, so from the bottom of my heart, this is the cry of all true Christians. My joy is, is in you. How much more do I delight in the law? But I've got this sin that still resides in my flesh. Then number seven, we see... Verse 23, there's a war within. All this leads to a war. You've got the spirit. You've got the flesh. You've got the, the mind. You have the new person. You have the sin that's within and wanting to do what's, what's right and, and even having the power to do it. But there's a battle that's going on inside. And that's why he says, but I see another law in me of a different kind. One that's totally opposed to the law of God. It's not a law that I delight in. It's an enemy inside of me, this law. And some of you, does any of your translations say principle instead of law in verse 23? I don't know. I know one or two of them do. I think that more accurately describes it, and that is that, uh, that, I, that uh, but I see in my members of my body another law or principle raging or waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. seems to get the upper hand. It's not a law that I delight in. It's just there. I hate it. There's a force within me. There's a power within me. There's a principle within me that wants to sin. And it's waging war with who I am, who's a new creature in Christ, with, with all the reserve that, that God has given me to fight. And this principle is in my members, he said. And I believe that's just another way for Paul to say from head to toe, it's inside of me. It's in my eyes. It's in my hands. It's in my feet. It's in my tongue. It's in my whole body. It's a principle that is holding me captive to sin and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. And that's what he says, making me a captive to the law of sin. See the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? Are you able to make the distinction there? Because this is important. The Christian has been freed. Well, the Christian has been freed from the bondage or the slavery to sin. The Christian's a new person in Christ. The Christian is a person who has the, the reserve and the, and the blessing of God to, to fight and be victorious over sin. The non-Christian doesn't. So Paul has been drawing a very graphic picture of the front lines of the spiritual war, which is inside of his own heart. We see that this war is raging. It's without, without, he hasn't mentioned any truce or ceasefire. And this, is the, this, this war knows many fronts. This war it, it expands out and it has a front in your heart and in your heart and in your heart and in your heart, in my heart. This war is going all over the place. Anyone who names Christ as Savior and Lord, there's the war, there's the front. And so he's been drawing this graphic picture of a spiritual war. You know, I don't know, sometimes my illustrations fall short, but here's one now. Let's try this one. Uh, spiritual Groundhog Day is normative Christianity. So you go to bed at night, and, and, and the alarm goes off. It's, it's 6 a.m., and I got you, babe, comes blasting out over the clock radio. And you get up at 6 o'clock, and you think, oh, I love the law. I delight in doing what God wants me to do. Oh, I want to be, until your feet hit the, hit, hit, hit the floor. And then the rest of the day is a day of battling for sin, battling for sin and losing the battle and feeling confused. And I mean, all the way until now it's time to go to bed. You get back in the bed, pull the covers up over you. And the next day, 6 o'clock, the alarm goes off. I got you, babe, comes out over the radio. And you go through it again, the same thing. Day after day. The very thing you do not want to do, you do again. The very thing that you, you uh, did purpose not to do, you, you do it again. And you go to bed again. You cry out again. You ask for God again. And you say, God, forgive me. Why, God? Why? And then he has a conflict restated in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that's when I... That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
and I, the picture that came to me there was right out of Genesis 4-7 with Cain and Abel. And Remember the warning that came to Cain and sins crouching at the door like a lion? He's just sitting there watching you. It's inside your heart, though. He's watching you and just waiting to what? Pounce. Genesis 4-7, Cain said, or Cain, sin is crouching, God says, at the door and when it desires for you and you must master it. That's the war. And then we see the clarification in the verses 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Four, followed by an explanation. I, Paul, delight in the law of God in my, in my inner being that is in my new man in Christ. I delight in the law. I delight in doing good. I delight in being a good Christian. By the way, I believe only a regenerate man could even say those words. That's where I keep coming back to Paul being a believer here. I mean, a non-believer cannot say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. They hate the law of God. 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart through our outer self, not in, is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. So, why am I in this endless conflict that we've been looking at? Why is it I do what I don't want to do? And why is it why I don't... What I'm not supposed to do, I do. Why is that? The law's good. It's sin in me. It's me. It's sin taking up residence in me, in my flesh. And, and, and that sin that's within me, within the flesh, is warring against the Spirit who wants to do that which is right and good. In fact, I find myself even temporarily jailed by sin and locked up in bondage to, to addictive sins in my life. And let me just say this. I believe this to be true. In fact, the longer you have walked with the Lord, the more you become aware of your sin. And the more the battle intensifies. So if you're looking for hope in the sense of, hey, it's going to get better as I get older, no, it, it, the war is going to get even worse. This is normative Christianity. And by the end of the day, Groundhog Day every day, by the end of the day, you find yourself crying out like the Apostle Paul did in verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean... Can you hear his heart there? I mean, do you hear the motions behind these words? Do you hear the frustration, the inner conflict that he has? Do you, you hear the lamenting, the grief that's there when he says, wretched man that I am? You know, if it wasn't for the fact this is divinely revealed in Scripture, I could say this, this Paul would never say these words. But he does. And so what's the way out? And we kind of painted ourselves into a war without an end, a groundhog day that goes on every day of our life, this battle that's going on. We find ourselves captive into sin, regularly being uh, defeated in battle. But look at the question he asks very carefully. Who, not what, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not what counselor or Christian therapist will help me with my dilemma. He says, who? Who's the person? Assuming there is one. 
Is there any hope? Is there any victory? Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then the victory comes in verse 25 with praise, with thanksgiving. And it's not dark now. Now light's coming in. And thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that I myself serve the law of God with the mind, but my, in my, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so he sees the answer is Christ, our Lord. All th- by the way, all three names are there. Paul's really excited when he puts all three linked together here. He's saying, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, his earthly name is his divine name in the sense of his anointed name and, and also his kingly name. He's the only deliverer. But here's the thing. It's a future delivery. The victory is not necessarily here and now. The victory is on the day that you die. It's a future victory. Um, yeah, we're going to have battles. We're going to have. We're going to. We're going to increase. We're going to grow in grace. We're going to become more like Christ as we battle this sin. But on the other hand, the ultimate victory through Christ isn't going to come until the day that you die. But it's there. It's coming. And uh, he's the only deliverer. He's the only mediator. He's the only savior. He's the only redeemer. He's his, only his sacrificial death. You will be delivered. And so you see where the progression is. Justification by faith, chapters 3 through 5. You see sanctification, chapter 6 through 8. But we're going to see when we come to chapter 8, he's going to mention the very end is what? Glorification. That's when the ultimate victory comes, when you're glorified. You have, and this body of death dies. It's going to rot in the grave. And you're going to have a new body given, which is a glorious body, a resurrected body that's going to be in complete harmony with who you are as a person in Christ forever. That's going to be the victory. So praise the Lord. So His suffering on the cross brought forgiveness. It cleansed and will ultimately bring glorification. You know, if Paul ended right here, he would have ended on a high note. But if you look at the end of the chapter, he does not end on a high note. He could have just left it right there, and oh boy, we're going to have a victory. Praise the Lord. But look what he adds. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So be it. You know, there's not a lot of victory there. The victory's future. The battle goes on. And we're in the battle. Now, we're going to see some, some good news here. By way of application, let me just ask you, have you experienced what Paul is exp- expressing here? Can you in any way identify with Paul in his being transparent with you? You know, have you ever cried out to God? I mean, just beat on your chest as, what a wretched person I must be doing what I just did again. God, forgive me. Maybe you ever get to that point, you just, oh, wretched man, what a wretched woman that I am. Listen, don't let this passage bring you down in defeat. I pray that it will bring you some encouragement and as well as some assurance of your salvation. If you're feeling this, this is good. 
This is beneficial if you feel this confusion that Paul's describing here. Because a non-Christian doesn't feel these things. A, a non-Christian doesn't... They're slaves to sin. They, they don't even battle with sin in their life. They don't delight in the law of God, but you do as a Christian. You don't care what God thinks, but as a Christian you care what God thinks. So this battle's going on, but the battle is a witness to you that you are one of God's children, that you become a new man in Christ, and as a new man in Christ, there's a war going on. Praise the Lord. That means I'm a Christian. You see how this works? It brings assurance. And so you wonder, well, maybe when the devil comes, says, how could, how could you be a Christian and do the things you do? And you can come back to him and say, well, I got this, in, this principle of sin that's within me. I've, I'm a new man in Christ, and, and I'm in a battle, and I might have lost this particular skirmish. But praise the Lord, I'm a child of God because it's brought me to repentance. It's brought me closer to Christ, and I wouldn't even be going through this battle, this tension in my heart, if I was unsaved. I must be a Christian. It's assurance. It brings assurance of salvation if you're in the fight. You feel the inner battle. You're a Christian like the Apostle Paul. And there's another application here that I see is, I believe it corrects, this passage corrects two errors in the Christian life. So this is a good, a good doctrinally good. When you talk about sanctification, you can fall into two big areas of, swing too far one way the areas of, of error. One is you can swing in the area of what's called perfectionism, seeing that is what, what it means to be sanctified. And the other area, clear over here, is in the area of antinomianism. And they're just miles apart. There's those who believe, uh, people like Finney, for example, there's those who believe that sanctification means you become perfect in this, this side of eternity. They're way over here. And there's those who see, well, what Paul's going through here, might as well just sin, right? I mean, it's going to happen anyway, so just... And then you go to lawlessness, and you go, you go, go to rebellion against God. What I see this passage doing is bringing both of these two extremes into the arena of truth, of balance. Because the closer you, you bring these two truths together, they begin to vibrate, you know, because like two, two magnets, you know, and they get closer together, they, they begin to vibrate against each other. And there now you're in the arena of truth because you're feeling the tension, you're feeling the confusion, you, 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 you're despondent. That, 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 that's where it's good to be. And so this, this reminds us, yeah, we're in a battle, we need to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. We need to avail ourselves of all the means of grace and be in the, engaged in the battle and in the fight. We need to take action. We need to mortify the deeds of the flesh. We need to fight. We need to cut them off. It's not, it's not, not a battle for passivity. It's, it's a battle for holiness. And that battle, when it's raging, results in eyes being plucked out, hands being cut off. And it, it's a serious battle to put to death the sin that's within us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we close today thanking you, Lord, for Paul. 
I mean, here's a man that uh, has taught us so much about you, about salvation. What a blessing it's been now for, to, now for him to open up his heart and show us himself. Maybe that's the only way we would have ever been able to personalize these truths to our own hearts, is to see it in Paul. And if that be the case, Father, I pray you would help us to, to realize that who we are in Christ, new men and women in Christ, yes, there's that presiding principle of sin that still is inside of us, from head to toe in all of our members, and the battle goes on, but we're not without hope. You tell us in Philippians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then the hope comes because it's God who's in us to will and to empower us to do what you've called us to do. And so as now we have the, the will, the desire, but also through you we have the power to defeat sin and to grow in grace. I thank you you haven't saved a bunch of flatliners like, like many, but you've saved those who are growing and being perfected. And for that, we praise you. We look for that day, Lord, when, when, when the final breath is taken and we, we enter into your presence, Lord. At that time, we'll be shouting out, Hallelujah for eternity. The victory is ours in Christ. Amen.